Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Katie Berlin, and my guest today is Stacy Purcell. Stacy, welcome to Central Line. So glad to have you. Thank you so much, Katie. I'm happy to be here. If people listening have been paying attention, they may have noticed that Stacy's name has shown up a few times recently in our publications. So in Newsstat and in Trends, Stacy's been a contributing author writing about retention, recruitment, all those good things. Um, so if her name sounds familiar, I'm sure you've seen Stacy around on the on the circuit. Um, you know, I feel like we've been crossing paths for a long time, and I'm so glad to finally get a chance to sit down and chat with you. Um, Stacey, would you mind just letting us know a little bit about yourself and what it is you do? Yes, yeah, sure. Thank you, Katie. Um, so Stacy Purcell, I've spent the last 26 years in executive search and recruiting. I started out my career working for a large international executive search firm, and I was placing ex- uh, for people with Fortune 500 companies, specifically in the food and beverage industry. And one of my clients that was a human food company had a had a pet division uh, where they sold pet food and they needed an executive um, to run that division. So that's how I first got into this industry. And I loved the people and uh, saw a need and decided I wanted to focus on this. Um, I started in 1997. Uh, back at that time, uh, some of the corporations were just starting to uh, get going and I helped Uh, one of those companies hire over 300 veterinarians and I quickly switched from working with food and beverage companies to deciding to specialize in the animal health industry and veterinary profession. So I'm the founder and CEO of the Vet Recruiter and we focus on executive search and recruiting exclusively for the animal health industry and the veterinary profession. That's a long time to be in this industry, um, you know, and to you've seen a lot of trends come and go probably um, during that time. And I I would imagine that staying in this industry for that long, you've seen, you know, you, you've sort of found a guiding light that helps keep you on track to say, okay, this is what's motivating me to get up every morning and do this work um, in the veterinary and animal health community. So what is that guiding light for you? What guides you? Yeah, I thought long and hard about that question because, and, and really it's, it's an easy answer for me though. Um, what gets me out of bed every morning is just, the passion for helping people and and solving problems. When you ask employers, and you know, Katie, I saw you at the Western Vet Conference a, a few weeks ago in Las yeah. Vegas. And uh, when I asked employers, "What's your biggest challenge in your business right now?" Almost a hundred percent of them said that their biggest challenge is hiring and retaining employees. So I get to solve those problems for companies. I have the opportunity to solve their their biggest challenges, which are hiring and retaining people, and at the same time. I get to help employers with that. I also get to help animal health professionals and uh, veterinarians grow their careers by helping them find opportunities to help them improve their quality of life. That's pretty, that's pretty big. I mean, when you think about problem solving, and I think veterinarians, vet techs, you know, we can relate for sure that we're, we're problem solvers too. Like, 
you know, medicine is really a big puzzle and medicine and patient care. There's so much about it, solving problems all the time. And it's a big thing to be able to go to one of the biggest vet conferences. And basically everyone you talk to, they're like, this is my biggest problem. And you happen to be the person with the skill set and the position to be able to help solve that problem for them. That's a really big deal. Like that's a, that's a good guiding light. It's a bad problem to have for, you know, if you're the the practice owner and you're working short staffed all the time, but it's also a really, it's got to be a really good feeling. Well, it really is. And I, I like to, to say that I'm my client's um, biggest secret weapon because um, they'll hire a great person and then their competitors will go, you know, how did they get that person? Where did that person come from? So I've said before, I'm kind of like the, the Wizard of Oz, the wizard behind the <laughs> yeah. curtain. I don't... You know, I, my name isn't in lights when somebody hires this great person, you know, this company announces this hire. Um, but, you know, my name's not ever mentioned. I, my work is behind the scenes. Yeah, you're sort of an un, unsung hero of this t- this particular problem, at least. Um, so you had mentioned that people answered your your question that their biggest problem was not just finding people to hire, but also keeping good team members. And I think everybody listening can probably relate to that because we've all seen too many good people leave the job, leave the profession. Um, and it's, it's really unfortunate and sad. Um, that's one of the things that affected me the most. I feel like when I was in clinical practice very recently was seeing people that I really admired and loved working with, um, leaving, leaving the hospital, leaving the field. So I, you know, right now, a lot of the advice is about hiring and recruiting, attracting candidates, big sign on bonuses, getting them to come and, um, and want to work for you. But that's clearly, that's only half the battle. So can you talk about trends that you've seen um, recently in the profession and maybe compare to some older trends when it comes to retention and attrition and um, how things have changed over the last few years? Sure. Well, you know, attrition in veterinary medicine has historically been high, I think. Um, but it has ramped up even more during the past um, few years. And there was an article that was posted on uh, LinkedIn. I don't remember the um, the author of the article or the original source, but uh, there was an article posted on LinkedIn that said up to one third of veterinary graduates think about leaving the profession within five years of graduation. And in 2021, uh, the AVMA Veterinary Business and Economic Forum, uh, there was a speaker that said 39% of veterinarians have thought about leaving during the past five years. And so, um, you know, some of those reasons that uh, veterinarians are leaving are burnout, financial stress, and a lack of work-life balance. But um, I would say too, that the pandemic contributed to these conditions too. So um, that we know that that increased the demand for veterinary services and people adopted pets, um, a pet or multiple pets. And then that led to even more burnout and stress um, and then the shortage as well. So um, there were retirements during the pandemic. There were veterinarians that had plan to stay and work longer, um, more years, but they it sped up their retirement, so they decided to, to drop out. So we had thousands of veterinarians that dropped out of the 
workforce over the past few years. But it's like a vicious cycle because, you know, one of the reasons that veterinarians leave is stress and burnout. And then that leads to more stress and burnout for the veterinarians that stay because in some clinics there's a lack of, um, of personnel, which causes you know, if you're in a four-doctor practice or historically a four-doctor practice and you're the only doctor there, then you're doing more work, um, you know, than you're accustomed to doing. And then that leads to more more stress and burnout and, and attrition. Yeah, I, I'm not glad that it exists, but I'm glad that you said that, that it's always, it's been a profession where attrition is high. I, you know, I don't like admitting that that's something our profession's always struggled with, but it's not a profession that's for everybody. And it's very hard, I think, for us to get an idea of what it's going to be like until we graduate. You know, no matter how many times you work in a vet clinic as a, as a kid, you know, as a vet student, it's just very difficult to get that feeling of what it's really going to be like when this is your job. And I remember getting out of school and I was a second career graduate. So I already had already worked in a different field for a few years when I went to vet school. And I still, when I got out, I was one of those one third where I was like, am I going to make it? You know, am I going to stay in this field? Um, and that that sort of five year mark was really a, a turning point for me. So it doesn't surprise me that you said that. And then adding the stress, the stress of the pandemic, you know, having worked through that myself, that was definitely it was a really big deal. And it caused a lot of people to question what's important to them. Um, what about. And, it, you know, you had mentioned that during the pandemic, a lot of people got pets. So it seemed like there was a pet boom. And I know I've heard differing opinions on whether we have a true shortage of veterinarians and veterinary technicians. Do we have a shortage in your view? And why aren't the new graduates filling those filling that gap? Yeah, so that's a great question. So um, it's an inter- it's interesting, in my opinion, that if there's even a debate on is there a shortage or is there not a shortage? Um, if you sat in my seat, you would know that there is definitely a shortage because my phone rings off the hook all day mm-hmm. long with practices that are trying to hire a veterinarian. Um, some that have been trying to hire for months, six months, a year. They've been running ads um, for some, some of them for over a year, especially in some of these rural areas, and they, they get no applicants. They can't find anybody. But so I look at the data. Uh, So the national unemployment rate for the whole country was 3.6 in February, which was just last month. But according to the job search site Zipia, since 2013, the unemployment rate in the veterinary profession has decreased from 1% to 0.2%. So that's almost no unemployment. So any veterinarian who wants to have a job has a job and there, there are not unemployed veterinarians lining up looking for a job. If anybody wants a job, they can easily find one. And if they're looking, they get multiple job offers. And so here's some more data. So, and this is gonna be the case for the foreseeable future. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics or the BLS in September of last year said that veterinarian jobs are projected to grow by 19% between 2021 and 2031. So we're already two years into this because we're in 2023. So the BLS is projecting 4,800 openings for veterinarians each year on average over the next decade, 
with about 1,680 of those representing brand newly created positions. And then the rest of those job openings will be to replace people who have transferred to different occupations or exited the workforce due to retirement. One other thing too, you'd asked about the new graduates. Um, you know, what about veterinary graduates and new veterinarians entering the workforce? You know, are, are they going to help? So, um, the problem there is that there are not enough new graduates to make up for the difference. So, if you look at data from the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges, there's about 3,000 uh, veterinary students that graduated in in 2020. So, if we have the same number of graduates that are entering the profession every year for the next 10 years, that would be 30,000 new veterinarians. But the problem there is there's going to be 48,000 open positions for veterinarians during that time span. So that means at the end of the decade, we'll be looking at 18,000 open positions for veterinarians and not enough veterinarians to fill them. So we're going to have 18,000 open positions and there won't be enough veterinarians. So we'll have 18,000 positions sitting open. Well, that's pretty sobering, isn't it? And I you know, when I talk to people who, for instance, work for telehealth companies, um, and they say they're inundated by applicants because they, you know, people want to work from home. Um, the pandemic definitely changed that landscape a lot. And it doesn't seem like it's hard to find people who want to work remotely as veterinarians or veterinary technicians for services that provide that kind of that kind of career. And so, but those jobs, there's so few of those jobs comparatively. And so I'm sure we can't say that just because there might be 50 applicants for an opening with a telehealth company, that's, that doesn't negate the fact that we still can have thousands too few veterinarians and veterinary technicians for the open positions on the clinic floor that we have. Um, and they may not even be the same applicants because some people who want to work from home may not be able to work in a clinic. Um, and I, you know, I know for me, like, one of the things that caused me to leave the clinic was just because I wanted to try something different. Um, I wanted, you know, I was burned out on clinical practice, and I wanted to try working in the profession in a different way. And that's why I'm at AHA now, and got very lucky to have the opportunity. But for you, for everything that you've seen, what do you think is the number one reason that people leave their jobs? Well, I was going to say, too, um, you know, about what you just said. So, um, you know, during the pandemic, um, during the lockdowns and people staying at home, um, people were saying, you know, everybody's working from home. And uh, I wish I had the statistics with me. I can't remember what they were, but I, I looked it up to see how many people historically worked from home. And it was... Um, I think it was like 75% of people don't work from home. And then the pandemic changed that. Um, but think about all of the jobs where people can't work from home. I mean, not just veterinary clinics, but human hospitals, people that work in manufacturing facilities. You know, there's a tremendous amount of jobs that don't allow people to work from home. But the pandemic did change this um, a bit with the veterinary um, profession and with telemedicine becoming more popular. I was talking to a veterinarian at the Western Vet Conference, and she had transitioned from working in a clinic. One was for health reasons, the physical demand of working in a clinic and lifting pets um, was one reason, but also just the work-life balance, the flexibility that 
she was able to gain by working um, telemedicine. And she had an app on her phone with the company that she was working for where she could pick her her schedule and she likes to work evenings. So she you knows she can have her days free and um, work in the evenings. And she was making enough money to you know, support herself by working when she wanted to work. So um, that is definitely something um, that did change. And so um, now I've forgotten your, your original question. If you could yeah, I I was curious about what you've seen, you know, even anecdotally as the number one reason that people leave their jobs in vet med. Okay. Um, so um, the thing that I hear the most in, in my recruiting practice, because I talk to veterinarians all day long. And, um, you know, our firm is placing veterinarians both in practice and also in industry. But the veterinarians that I talk with that are in practice that are wanting to leave, uh, the number one reason that they give me is um, burnout. Um, Other reasons are um, uh, lack of work-life balance, um, the scheduling. Um, they They don't really see a career path in some cases. They feel like they're you know, doing the same thing that they've done for years. Um, I talked to a lady last week and she said, I feel like I work 24 seven. She didn't have the boundaries in place. Um, so those are the most common reasons that I hear. Yeah. That's interesting that you mentioned kind of feeling stuck, uh, that lack of growth and development opportunity, because, you know, I think a lot of us choose this field because we know we're not going to be bored, right? I mean, vet med is a lot of things, but it's, it's usually not boring. <laughs> and I knew every day was going to be different. And I felt like, you know, you constantly are learning and learning. And I'm definitely somebody who loves learning. Like you can always see piles and piles of books behind me because I'm constantly cycling through books and wanting to learn more. And I still felt stuck as an associate vet. And I don't think I'm alone in that. As you mentioned, you know, I, I know I'm not alone in that in feeling that there just wasn't a place to go. If I didn't want to own a practice, I was I, I didn't know how to grow, um, other than just making sure I was practicing the best patient care that I could. And um, as a field of go getters, of people who have been striving for a long time and usually do well in school and are used to getting what they go after, it's hard to graduate and just like put the brakes on and not be that way anymore and not have goals and things to strive for and places to go. Um, And so I wonder if that's something that, you know, that would be worth us kind of investigating further as a profession. Um, I think we are probably doing that. And I think the more we can do that and talk about it, the better. Would you agree up with that? It's not a lot better though. I would say yes. Um, I would, but at the same time, it's it's so much better in terms of the opportunities available to veterinarians than it was, you know, 25 years ago. You know, when I started placing veterinarians in um, 1997, um, the majority of the veterinarians that I talked with either owned a practice or um, they were an associate in a practice, but the corporatization of um, veterinary medicine, even though sometimes it gets, you know, a bad rap, it's actually done some very positive things for the profession. So, you know, some of these larger corporations will put veterinarians in, you know, regional leadership positions, um, quality control. Um, they, some of the corporations really do offer a career path. You can be a medical director without 
having to um, go to the bank and take out a loan to open up your own practice. And then even in industry, there's so many um, interesting opportunities available um, in industry or nonprofit associations. So I see more jobs for veterinarians, you know, today than I did um, 20 years ago or 20 over 25 years ago. That's great. Yeah, that's a good point about um, corporate ownership of vet clinics definitely does open up a lot more tiers of of um, possibility for veterinarians who don't necessarily want to be practice owners. And um, I have seen that for sure make a difference in my peer group. Um, but so I want to I want to switch tracks a little bit from, you know, the idea of like, okay, here's why people leave to how can we try to reverse that trend? And I know there are a lot of people listening who are like, please tell me how to keep my team members because I've been hemorrhaging them and I don't know how to make it stop. Um, what is maybe the first step that a practice can do to try to, if they've had a bunch of people leave, um, seemingly for different reasons even, like what can they do first to try to figure out why and see if they can reverse the trend? Well, the first step that I would recommend a practice do that's experiencing um, turnover is to, to find out what is the reason that their employees are turning over. So one thing they can do is they can uh, conduct, conduct an exit interview with the team members that are leaving. And, you know, that might feel, um, you know, embarrassing or um, maybe you don't want to, you know, hear the reasons. But, um, you know, what exit interviews are, they're, they're confidential conversations conducted by someone at the practice with the person who's just handed in their resignation. And so when you're conducting an exit interview, ask open-ended questions that encourage the departing employee to provide their honest and detailed feedback about what it was like to work for the practice. So some of the questions you can ask somebody in an exit interview were, you know, what factors influenced your decision to leave our practice? And did you feel valued and supported in your role? And uh, were you provided with the resources and the training that you needed to do your job effectively? Uh, do you feel you had opportunities to grow and develop yourself professionally? And was there anything about the culture or the work environment that you found was challenging or, or unsatisfying? So if you can get um, some information, then you can learn some things about your practice and, and um, this insight um, can cause the practice to, to make some positive changes to help reduce the turnover going forward. That's great advice. I have a, a few questions, few follow-up questions on that. So first one is the timing of the exit interview. Like I would imagine that it could be awkward if you have an interview with somebody who's put in their two weeks notice, they still have 10 days left of that two weeks. And, um, and they say some pretty like, you know, some pretty open, honest things. I could imagine that they might be more likely to be forthcoming about those things if they then don't have to sit face to face with you like across an exam table for another 10 days. So do you recommend doing these exit interviews after their last day or how does that timing work out usually? My recommendation would be to schedule it on their mm -hmm. last day. So if they've given you a, a two week notice and, you know, their last day is on a Friday, um, you know, let them know that on their last day that you'd like to schedule an exit interview with them and then carve out time on that day uh, to do that. You know, it might be awkward to, you know, to take them to lunch on their last day. It depends on the relationship you have with them. You know, if you have 
a great relationship with them as they're walking, you know, leaving, you could schedule lunch on the last day to do this one-on-one -on -one with them. Or if you don't have a great relationship, just, you know, just conduct it, you know, in the afternoon on their last day and just try to get the, the information from them before they leave. Because once they've already departed, um, they may be less likely to conduct an exit interview. And like you said, if you do it on the day they hand in their resignation and they have to work with you for the next two weeks, that would be awkward too. Yeah. And so another follow-up question I have is for the employee. Um, so say I was in that position um, and I have had jobs that I've left where I did have an exit interview. And this is actually when I worked for a corporation and they, they had like a third party doing these exit interviews. So it was a company that did the interviews for them. And they called me after I'd left. And I was very honest during that interview, but I also didn't know if anybody was going to hear it because it was going to a person who didn't even work directly for that company. Um, and so it, it felt, you know, I, I had some things to say, but I also wasn't sure how effective it was going to be. And also then I've left, I've had the opposite situation where I left a, a, a position where I worked for people I really liked. Didn't mean there weren't significant issues that contributed to me leaving, but I really liked them and I didn't want to leave on a sour note. And so I wasn't sure if I should be totally honest with them. For the employee, how can you like, how do you recommend that they sort of ride that line? Like, how honest can you really be in an exit interview? And is is this a situation where being more honest is actually the more kind thing to do? Yeah, so, um, you know, I like that 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 employer hired an outside um, firm to do that. Uh, because it takes the pressure mm -hmm. off the, the hiring manager, the practice owner. Um, and so, um, you know, that also might result in the employee being more honest because it is a, a third party. Um, and because that company invested in, you know, hiring and paying for that third party, um, I'm sure that that third party did provide that feedback to that employer. But as far as whether or not the employee leaving should be honest, I would recommend that they do be honest. They can be diplomatic. They can be professional. Um, but I think that it's important to to be honest. You want to be honest because, um, you know, hopefully, I mean, hopefully you're, when you're leaving, you're still, you know, you want to leave in a professional way and uh, you don't want to have the next, you know, employees come in and experience um, whatever the negativity was that you experienced. So, you know, think of it as you're helping, you're helping the next person um, that's coming into this role have a better experience than, than you did. That's great advice. And I'm thinking about all of the opportunities that maybe we pass up either as employees or employers to have those conversations before somebody's handed in their resignation, you know, knowing that somebody could be happier and we could be addressing those issues sooner. Um, but also not every team member is going to feel comfortable speaking up. Um, and so it can be hard, I'm sure, for employers and employees to line up on like, when is the right time to ask them about whether they're happy. Um, for an employer looking at their team, it, what do you think the best barometer is? So like if this employer kind of, you know, conducts reviews and has meetings, you know, and everybody seems... Like they don't, they're not approaching them, asking them to talk all the time. How can an employer tell if their team is happy and, and, you know, and how engaged they are? 
Well, your point before about when you were leaving and the outside firm conducted the exit interview, um, what you what you can do as an employer is you can hire an outside firm to conduct regular um, feedback studies on your employees so that you don't have the awkwardness of doing that yourself. But um, what you can do is you can hire that that firm or that person and you can decide what questions are going to be asked. You know, what what information are you looking for? But but conduct cert. Don't wait until somebody hands in their resignation to learn that they're unhappy, but conduct regular surveys. It could be done quarterly of everyone in your company. And um, you can give them a, you know, 10 or $20 Amazon or Starbucks gift card for completing this study. And then you're going to get that regular feedback, but you're not going to have the awkwardness of having to sit down with them and bring them into your office and ask the questions. You have a neutral third party that's doing that for you. And then you're getting that feedback so that you can make changes along the way every quarter and, and look from quarter to quarter. These the same themes that I heard the last quarter of the last year, or is there something new that's coming up that, you know, I need to be aware of? Um, another thing, some of the, some of the younger people, uh, they don't want to have just an annual review once a year, but they want regular check-in times, um, maybe even on a monthly or quarterly basis. Um, you know, we have people in our recruiting firm, some of the younger people that have specifically said, you know, I want I want a monthly review. And at first I thought, well, that's that's a lot of work for me. Um, but it's it's very valuable because once a month we can check in with everybody, let them know how they're doing. They can let us know how they're doing. And um, it, it provides tremendous value. I love that you said that, that like we could hire employers could hire somebody to do this for them long before it's an exit interview. Um because I, I'm not sure that's something that people think about really. You know, I, we talk a lot now, which is wonderful about creating a culture of feedback and making sure that, you know, there's two way feedback, um, that's possible between management and the team. And that's wonderful, but you're right. There are also things that will be hard for employees to say directly to the person, especially if that person is, the person who's responsible for some of the things that might be making them unhappy. Um, so as far as like a third party to do this, where can employers find these third parties and like, you know, how can they, how can they get that kind of arrangement set up? And also is this typically within the realm of possibility for a private practice? Sure. Um, you can, there's out, uh, outsource companies that specialize, you know, with some of the veterinary practices, especially if they're smaller, um, they may not have um, or have a need for a whole HR staff on site um, like a bigger company would. And so there are um, firms that specialize in providing human resources services for smaller businesses. So you can actually outsource that to a company that specializes in um, providing human resources services. And I know a company or two. So, you know, after this podcast, if somebody wants to reach out to me, I could you know, give a hand over a referral. Awesome. Well, I, I really like that idea. And I know I would have appreciated having that at certain points is having somebody ask me to be honest with them about how things are going during that time before we were in a crisis situation. Cause I have been in clinics where people hired a consultant to come in and like figure out what's wrong, basically what troubleshoot our culture. And at that point, by the time most people hire that person, I feel like it's, it's pretty bad. And, um, 
it's kind of preventive medicine the way you're describing it. And I really like that idea. Like, why not? Well, it can be awkward when that consultant comes in. And at that point, everybody knows there's an right. issue and this consultant's here to try to figure out what the problem is. But by having those regular, you know, quarterly surveys, um, you know, hopefully it doesn't lead to a big problem where you have to bring in the consultant. Right. Site. Love it. And I also, what this, this is sort of segueing me into something else that I wanted to ask you about because, um, you know, this is sort of the intersection between attracting team members and retaining them is the, the question of hiring bonuses, like sign on bonuses. Um, so I know that there, if I were an associate in a practice right now, and I knew that people were advertising like a hundred thousand dollar sign on bonus for an associate coming into the practice. And I was still working there and I was just getting paid when I was getting paid. I would have something to say about that. <laughs> and I would want somebody to ask me what that's, what that thing was. And I don't know if people are asking. So first question is, do you think sign on bonuses are working to keep people at practices? I mean, I could imagine they're helping to attract them, but are they actually helping retain people? And how do you negotiate that arrangement if you have loyal employees who are working hard and didn't get that bonus when they started working for you? Well, the sign-on bonus encourages somebody to leave one practice and join another practice because they're getting a sign-on bonus to do that. But the sign-on bonus doesn't keep them there. I mean, depending on what the arrangement mm -hmm. is, so they might have to, you know, stay a year or pay it back. But um, a retention bonus is what can keep them there because uh, we're seeing some practices that are offering a sign-on and retention mm -hmm. bonus where you get your sign-on bonus up front in the first year and then the retention bonus for staying the second and third year. So your question, if you're somebody in a practice and you've been there 10 years and your practice just hired somebody and offered them a sign-on bonus, you might be thinking, well, I need to leave this practice and go to another practice so I can get that sign-on bonus. So what we've seen some employers do to be able to retain the people that and really reward them for their loyalty is offer them a retention bonus. So if you're hiring new people into the practice and you're giving them a sign-on bonus, consider offering your loyal team members a retention bonus um, to keep them happy so that they don't leave to go somewhere else for, like you said, a $100,000 sign-on bonus. Yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, we we hear this with clients, right? I mean, if we have a, like a new client special where they get a discount on this or a free first exam or something like that. And then your clients who've been coming to you for 25 years, like six different pets, you know, you've seen their kids grow up and they're like, wait a second, like, what about me? You know, where's, where's my loyalty reward? And it's no different. You know, if you're working hard in the trenches and seeing people get offered these enormous sums of money and you're right. I mean, I was thinking about sign on bonuses, having a, having a condition, like you have to stay a certain amount of time, but yeah, a sign on bonus that, that usually isn't very long if there is one, um, or relocation money and stuff like that. Um, which, you know, most of us who were employed at vet clinics a long time ago, you know, 10 years ago or more didn't get. Um, and I think it's so important to be open and transparent about that with your team so they don't find this out in a job ad and then to pacify them, offer them that thing, like offer them the thing first would be my, my advice as an employee. 
with their salary too, because, you know, we, I had an experience recently where a practice owner called me and he said, I've been trying to hire somebody. And um, he said, what do you think I would need to pay them? So I, you know, I haven't seen a single salary accepted in the last two years that was under a hundred thousand because new grads are, you know, the minimum salary they're, they're accepting is a hundred thousand. So this practice owner was paying all of his current veterinarians $90,000. And he said, what is it going to take to hire somebody new? And I said, well, at least a hundred thousand, and that's going to be for a new grad. And then with experience, it's going to be more. And he goes, well, I only pay my current veterinarians 90,000. And I said, well, then they're a flight risk. I said, if you don't bump their pay up to at least a hundred thousand, then they're at risk of going somewhere else. And I don't think he had thought about that. But if you're hiring new people in at a higher salary than you're paying your current veterinarians, and your current veterinarians find out about that, and they probably will at some point, um, that they're going to start thinking, well, I'm not getting what I'm worth in this market. I need to start looking for something else. Yeah. Um, and even if you give it to them when they, if they can come to you and ask for a raise, and then you give them the pay increase, it feels a little bit dishonest that they had to find out and come and ask you. Um, and that would change the relationship, I think, for me anyway. This AHA podcast is brought to you by Care Credit. Care Credit understands that all veterinary teams are busier than ever. To help patients get the care they need, the Care Credit Health and Pet Care Credit Card allows clients to access a budget-friendly financing experience anytime from anywhere on their own smart device. They can learn, see if they pre-qualify, apply, and even pay if approved, all on that smart device. With just a tap, they have a friendly, contactless way to pay over time for the services and treatments their pet needs, whether it be a general, referring, or specialty hospital, as long as they accept the Care Credit credit card. Okay, I have another question, one more question for you about this, which is sort of sort of related, but um, I hadn't planned to ask you, but it's just rolling around in my head now. But I was always paid on on ProCell, you know, so I had a base salary and then got a percentage of production. I had negative accruals. So if I went on vacation and I didn't make enough to cover my base and I would be in the hole for the next month. And that's, that's been under debate a lot lately. It's used to be the standard. When I graduated in 2009, it was the standard. Everybody was getting paid that way. Now we're talking about new grads sometimes getting $150,000 for that first year. And I know that even with inflation and price increases since 2009, and I did graduate during a recession, so I realized there's a difference, but like there's no way that I could have made back $150,000 in production my first year out of school. So I'm just wondering, are we just sort of suggesting to people that they pay these higher salaries to keep bodies, to keep their, their workers, even if there's no way that they're generating that amount of income? Yeah. So that's a question that I think about every single day because you know, practice owners will say, well, if I pay this salary, um, you know, how is this new grad going to, you know, produce that? And, um, you know, I think that's happening in some cases. I think that they're offering a new grad a, a salary that may not be, un, you know, may be unsustainable because they may not be able to produce that in the first year. And so, um, I've thought long and hard about that. I'm, I'm not a practice management consultant that gets into the, um, you know, is this practice profitable? Um, the conversations I have are about salaries, but I will say I saw something the other day that, um, it, it, so in my search practice, the majority of the offers are pro-sal 
Um, there are some that are straight salary, but the most common way to pay is pro-sal. And not only are the salaries going up, but the pro-sal percentages mm. are going up. I used to be 18 to 20 percent and then, you know, 20 to 22. Now we're seeing even 22 to 25 percent on wow. pro-sal. And in in no negative accrual, it's become very out of fashion to do the negative accrual. So the, especially the newer graduates don't want that. They'll turn down a job if there's negative. Yeah, I support this. (laughs) And so, um, you know, hopefully if you hire that person, especially a newer grad, um, you're going to retain them. So I don't know what the answer is. I don't want to practice to lose money um, the first year, but hopefully, you know, you have a great culture and you can look at this person as a long-term investment that if we provide them the mentorship and a great culture, you know, they're going to stay there year two and year three. If they leave after a year, you really have to look in the mirror and say, okay, you know, why did this person we invested in leave in year two? And it's probably because the mentorship wasn't there, because that's the number one thing I hear from doctors that have started a practice and they leave after year one or two. It's um, the mentorship wasn't what they were expecting it to be. That's a great point. And mentorship comes up a lot um, in other discussions that we've had. And in fact, um, AHA has a a new mentoring guideline coming out this summer um, because it is such, such an important thing. And people, I think, feel overwhelmed by the idea. They think that training is mentorship and it's not, Um, you know, mentorship is, is a completely different skill set that a lot of people just haven't had the chance to develop. So, um, you know, I, I, I like that answer. I think, as veterinarians, at least, and I can only speak for associate vets because that's the role I spent the most time in. But I sort of felt like I was only valued for that dollar amount. But in almost every other profession, like the dollar amount that I brought into the practice, but at almost every other profession, people get a salary that's not that can't be based exactly on dollars in, dollars out. Um, you know, apart from somebody who works solely on commission and sales, it's very difficult to gauge somebody's actual value with like a, a checks and balances sheet, you know, and the value of an employee goes so far beyond that cash amount in terms of like what you contribute to the culture. Are you getting along great with this, with the rest of the staff? Are you a great communicator with clients? Do you bring in a little bit less money, but clients keep coming back to see you because they trust you. These are things that you can't necessarily value in dollars. And I always felt a little bit odd about being paid solely based on my production on my production, excuse me, and having that sort of not be part of part of the conversation. And then when I got out of clinical practice and I was just going to get a salary for like being a vet in a different job, it seemed insane to me. Like, what? How do you know how much I'm worth? I don't even know how much I'm worth. And it was very strange transition to sort of the real world. So I hope that in the next few years, we start to see a little bit of a shift in how we think about associate veterinarians. I think it's already starting like you were like you were alluding to and and I think that would be a very positive thing um, if we could stop talking about associates solely in terms of numbers. Well, it is interesting because, like I said, the majority of um, offers that I see are on ProSal, and you know there is a debate with this. But you know, some veterinarians, um, you know, they only want to be paid on ProSal, and some veterinarians don't want to be paid on ProSal. They only want to be paid on a salary. So you know, some practices do it one way or the other, but what we've seen recently that's become more popular 
is where the practice builds an offer around what that veterinarian wants. So there'll be practices where some of the doctors are on pro-sal, some are on salary. So they'll get with that individual and say, how do you want to be paid? Do you want to be paid on salary? Do you want to be paid on production? And even the benefits, um, we have practices that are customizing. And I'm not talking about benefits like, you know, medical or dental or 401k, because those are usually locked in. But you know, things like, um, you know, we had a veterinarian negotiate, you know, books for con- for continuing education and mm. training or, or more CE, or maybe I want to be, I want to go to this particular conference to learn this new skill. So customizing some of the things that you do have flexibility to customize. Maybe this person wants more vacation time. Maybe this person wants um, to do more CE. Um, just figure out what it is that's important to that person you're trying to hire and try to, you know, have some degree of flexibility with that. I love that. Yeah, I, I would, I'm very in favor of that trend. Like not every employee is the same and not every employee is going to value the same things. So love that. Okay, Stacy, I have one more question for you um, because I feel like you have so much knowledge of the industry and you've been here for a long time, seeing people come and go and seeing trends change, but um, I'm sure some things stay the same. And um, I was wondering if you, let's say you could stick a post-it on the rear view mirror of every single veterinary professional in any role of every single veterinary professional's car so that when they get in it to go to work in the morning, they'll see it. What would it say? One day or day one. Love it. Does that have specific meaning for you personally? Well, you know, some people have a tendency to say, you know, one day I'll do this, whether it be the owner of a practice, you know, one day we'll do this, one day we'll make this change, or whether it be, you know, a veterinarian, maybe somebody is in a practice situation and they're, they're very unfulfilled, they're not happy, but they don't do anything about it. They go, one day I'll do something about this. Um, well, you can continue to say, you know, one day I'll do something, or you can say day one. I'm going to do something now. So it really comes down to being um, proactive instead of being reactive. I love that. Mm -hmm. I fully agree with you. And um, definitely a lot of great things have happened in my life when I decided it was day one. (laughs) Um, But it is not always, it's, it's, it's definitely easier said than done, but it's a great reminder. Stacey. It's hard to make, it's hard to make change, but, um, if you don't make changes, then you're not growing. You know, if you're if you're in the status quo and um, then there's other people that are, you know, they're moving forward and, and, and you're staying stuck. So if you're stuck, uh, whether you're employer or whether you're um, you know, a veterinarian in a practice, you know, get unstuck. You know, change is hard sometimes, but um, sometimes changes can be very positive. I love that so much. Stacy, thank you so much for spending time and sharing all of your wisdom with us. Um, you always have great tips for everyone to be able to actually go out and change what they're doing if it isn't working for them. Um, we'll put your contact information and website in the show notes today, but do you want to just let everybody know where they can find you? Yes. Um, so I'm very easy to find. Uh, my website is www.thevetrecruiter.com. 
And my email is Stacy. it's S-T-A-C-Y at thevetrecruiter.com. And Katie, thank you so much for inviting me here today. It's been a been a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. For me too, Stacy. Thank you so much. And um, hopefully I'll run into you again at a conference soon. But for now, it's been great to connect. Um, and thanks to everyone for listening. Um, we'll catch you next time on another episode of Central Line. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.